Welcome to All The Things Podcast. I am Regina Lawrence, your host. I am a lawyer turned soulful business and life strategist and a transformational mindset coach. I'm also the founder of the community, All The Things Business. I have created a community of women who can truly be all of the things. Successful, spiritual, sexual, and wildly unique. All while creating a life of purpose and passion according to our own rules. We don't have to look or be the person that society dictates or demands for us to be anymore. We don't have to play by somebody else's rules. We can truly be whoever we want, and that person can be all of the things. Welcome to my podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, All the Things with Regina Lawrence. I'm your host, Regina Lawrence, and I am so excited to have you back for episode five. This is such an interesting episode. I love it. I got off this call, and I was so excited, and I'm so excited to share it with you. As you all know, something that I love is creating community, and I love to be connected and to connect with people all over who share the values and the vision that I do for this life and for this world. And so my dear friend, Nicole Maiden, connected me with Heidi Bushy, who is a speaker, an author, and a relationship expert. We connected because we both love the conversation of dating, relationships, and sex. And Heidi wrote her first book, Relationship Ready, How I Stopped Fucking Randos and Started Cupcaking My Soul, which is available on Amazon and Audible. Heidi says that after years of striking out with guy after guy, she finally bottomed out with men in relationship and she became willing to do some work. The soul level work that she did completely transformed her perspective on the accessibility of love and relationships. And she realized that other women might need these tools too. So in 2018, she left her cubicle life job to write this book and to pursue her, her passion, which is to help women identify and change painful patterns in their relationships. Heidi is so funny. She has such a fresh perspective on things. I mean, we just laughed through this podcast, but we had such great conversations about dating, about having sex, about having sober sex. Heidi has been sober for almost nine years, which is so fucking awesome. If you know anything about me, you know I am so interested in sobriety and how people live it and are successful with it and choose one day at a time. So Heidi is such a beautiful example of that, and I hope that you guys Love this episode as much as I do. I hope you laugh as much as I did. And don't forget to go follow Heidi on Instagram. And her website is also listed in the episode. But I'll also put it in the show notes for all of you guys. She's awesome. And she's always putting out such beautiful, valuable content. So with that, enjoy the episode. It's so good to chat with you. I know. It's Um, been a long time. It's been a long time. I was sitting this morning. Oh, my God. I'll do my Palo Santo too. We'll do it together. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you start everything with Palo Santo? I try to, but honestly, I ran out oh, like right as the um, right as everyone was going into quarantine and stay-at-home orders here. I ran out, and it's kind of hard to find right now. I know. I couldn't get any online, but then I was out for something for oh for my anniversary, which was in early June, and I found a little spot that was selling sticks. By, they were selling it by the stick, but it was four dollars a stick, which okay. I mean, I was like. Give me all the sticks. I still bought like five fucking sticks. Give me, give me 500 of them. I'm still going to take them. Mm. A lot of times at Whole Foods, they'll sell like a bundle of Palo, 
and sage and mm. all the witchy stuff together. I love that. All the witchy stuff at Whole Foods. <laughs> of course. Okay. I'm, I feel like your podcast is explicit, but I just wanted to make sure. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can say any, you can literally say anything you want on my podcast love because it. I say whatever the fuck I want on the podcast. <laughs> Well, cool. I'm excited. We're going to chat for like, what, 45 minutes, an hour, 30 minutes? Yeah. What's your time frame? Mm, like 45 minutes-ish to an hour. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so this morning I started going through your, I was going through your book this morning. Uh-huh. Um, you're funny. <laughs> I had like gone through it before, but this morning I was like, I wanted to like see different things I would want to talk to you about. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. What was the thing that like, what was like the moment where you were like, I got to write a book or has it been your whole life? People are like, Heidi, you need to write Oh my a God. Book. Uh, that's funny. I mean, I could talk about that forever, but, um, but I would say, um, I would say, you know, a couple of years ago, somebody was like, you should write a book. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, whatever. But really what happened was, you know, I did all this stuff. I did all the work that I outlined in the book in 2013. 2013, because here's the thing, right? I was two years sober and not everyone has to get sober to do this work, but I personally would not have had a shot at doing it if I hadn't gotten sober. Right. So I was like two years sober and like my last two vices were like fucking randos and parking illegally. (laughs) I was like, you know, I was like, look, I, I already, you know, I don't drink, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke and quit smoking at that stage. Like I show up where I'm supposed to show up. I go to my job on time. I forward my mail when I move. Like the last things I get to do are sleep with random people and park illegally. Like that's it. You know, so I was like really in this phase, like I do what I want, you know? And, um, and so I was like doing that stuff and what ended up happening. And I write, I talk about it in the book is I found myself in this, um, in this arrangement with this guy who had a girlfriend and we were just like, you know, getting, getting together, get down. So we weren't like going to dinner. We weren't like seeing movies. We were just like getting together to fuck basically. And we had agreed that that was what we're going to do. And at the time I'm like, you know, yeah, I've seen sex in the city. That's like empowered. I do what I want. I do what I want. Right. This is my last place. And it felt really good. And then, you know, for like three or four months, that's what we did. And then eventually um, he broke up with his girlfriend. And then like maybe a month after that, he came to me and was like, you know, um, I really feel like I'm objectifying you. Do you think that we could go to dinner and get down or go to a movie and get down? And I said to him, like, well, that would be dating, you know? And he was like, well, Heidi, I don't want to date you. I was clear with you from the beginning. And so at that stage, like the bottom fell out for me. I just really had this moment of clarity that like what had been authentic for me six months before was really not true for me anymore. Like it really wasn't serving me to have no strings attached sex with this guy. And that like, if I was really going to be honest with myself, when I really got honest with myself in that moment, it was like, oh, I was always hoping that he was going to dump her and choose me the whole time. And so that was like a huge moment of reckoning where like, I was like, oh my God, the behavior that I'm engaging in as much fun as it was is no longer authentic and serving my highest self. And it's actually causing me pain. And now the problem is I want to have a relationship with someone, but the only thing I know how to do is like swipe left or right. Mm-hmm. Like, and that is not like, that's not helping me get to where I want to go. So I ended up no. doing all this work. So that's kind of a long way around just to say that I, that I had that bottom with men in relationships probably in 2012 or 2013. And then, um, it took me a couple of years. It took me a year to do all the work. So I met my now husband in 2014 and that was like a year later after I'd done the work. Um, and so, uh, by the time I decided in 2018, I was going to leave my job and write the book. So, you know, it took a little bit of time for me to come to come to terms with it. But really the reason why was because I was like, there are, I ended up 
being exposed to these tools that help me change my relationship, uh, my perception of men and relationships, my, my entire story, my entire narrative around the accessibility of love. And I came into those tools. I came by them because I was already really active in 12 step recovery. And I was like, there are so many women out there that need to read this, that need these tools and might not be like, quote, uh, like lucky enough <laughs> to be yeah. an alcoholic or know someone who is, or, you know, yeah. a lot of the tools are derivative of, of all different, all kinds of different self-help stuff. But so that was really why I decided to write the book. Um, and so, yeah, it took, and then I published, I decided in 2018, look, I'm really going to write this. And I left my cubicle job because I wanted to be able to, there were a number of reasons that I left my job. I was working for the Portland police bureau, um, as a crime analyst, which sounds like all like blue lights and epithelials, but was mostly like, <laughs> no, it was mostly like spreadsheets and, um, being asked to reanalyze data. So it didn't, show what it was showing um yeah. my values i i couldn't be happier today that i parted ways with the bureau um because it turned out you know our values were not aligned and then also i was like i had this creative project on my heart of like this is important to me and i want to take the opportunity to do this so i left my desk job in 2018 october 2nd of 2018 was my last day there and i published the book on october 1st 2019 wow yeah, i love that awesome. you think okay um thinking back to when you were fucking randos mm-hmm were you always somewhere deep in your heart hoping that like this person could potentially be a boyfriend and love you? Hmm. I, this is an interesting question. Before I get to this, I have to tell you, I'm dying for your accent. It is so nostalgic for me to be talking to somebody from Philadelphia because I went to school at the university of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Iowa. And so that's very, Iowa is very definitely in the Midwest. But when you grow up in Iowa, you think, I remember thinking like, I'm going to the East Coast, I'm going to Pittsburgh, which like anyone from the East Coast is like, Pittsburgh is not the East Coast, it's basically the Midwest. <laughs> but true. I went to school with so many girls from Philly and I was in sorority with so many girls from Philly and I just like, it's, so I'm having a lot of nostalgia that we're talking, that I'm talking to. We're a girl. unique, girls from Philadelphia are a very unique breed of woman. <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> and I loved them. I mean, it was so, it was so awesome to be surrounded. I mean, one of the things that was so great about, I mean, and I don't mean, I don't mean to essentialize all women from Philadelphia, but a lot of the women I knew from Philadelphia were supremely confident you know, were not afraid to say what was on their heart or on their mind. And I learned a lot from being around women who had this confidence and assuredness. So it's, I'm just, I'm on memory lane from that. But um, I love that. As, as far as always, you know, I do think there were probably some times in my life when I, you know, fucked randos and really it was just, let's just do this and be done. But I will say, I would say maybe that was, that was the, the minority of the time, maybe 10% of the time. I really think that honestly, I had always been searching for somebody to choose me, but I was, um, I had some pretty deep abandonment wounds and I had some, um, patterns of choosing men that were unavailable. Um, and so it felt really safe to choose unavailable men, which randos were pretty unavailable, especially randos who were involved with other women or, oh my God, who lived in another state or, oh my God, another country for me. I was a sucker. One of, one of the last guys I dated, was a German national who was living in Nepal and had like very like, um, you know, like very unreliable internet connection. He was always like, Oh, I can't call you. You know, and I'm sure he was telling me the truth, but it like was not 
making him any more reliable or available that like his internet was always out or whatever. And then like he and I would rendezvous in places like Las Vegas and Amsterdam. So we were like totally living this like a complete fantasy life. Right. So I, but I do remember thinking like, I was really hoping that he was going to fall for me and like move to where I was. Right. So there was a lot of, there was a, a small amount of the time. I think I was just like, Oh, I just do what I want. But I think more often than not, I had a deep longing for an actual connection and I just didn't have the, um, like the self-awareness or the self-worth to decide like, this is what I want and I'm not settling for less. Totally. Totally. And I think a lot, I was going to say the majority of women, I think a lot of women have that same thing that you just outlined. Yeah. And I mean, I just think, you know, some of it, I, I don't know, I guess I don't have to know exactly why, but I just know when I really finally took a look at um, at the patterns that I had around getting into relationships with men, I started to realize like, wow, I've been dating unavailable men from the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and the internet makes it super easy. And um, there is something to the safety of dating someone behind a keyboard on your phone or behind a keyboard on a laptop because you get the opportunity to like really craft what it is you're going to say so you can make sure that you're super funny or that you can make sure that you're very low maintenance. Um, but you know, for me, I, at a very early age, when I talk about it in the book, one of my first dating experiences was in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I got a note in my locker oh, yeah. from a guy who wanted me to be his girlfriend. And I was like, yes, you know, I was so excited. I, I felt like I had arrived. I, um, and so of course I responded, yes, I want to be your girlfriend, you know, sent the note back via the appropriate messengers. And a couple days later, this little, this other gal who just kind of was tangential to my circle came over to me and was like, Heidi, are you dating Brad? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, of course I am. I like, like him so much. And she was like, ew, you know, just in that way that like girls do when they're 12. Totally. And honestly, I'll never forget. It it didn't matter to me. She wasn't a close friend of mine. He, I didn't even know who he was, to be honest. And, but I'll never remember, I'll never forget the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm doing this wrong. And everyone knows I'm doing this wrong. And I don't ever want to get caught doing something wrong ever again. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So for me, that meant like that boys at my high school and boys in my middle school were all kind of off limits. And it happened to kind of dovetail with the rise of, AOL and the internet. So like we were getting every week, you're going out to your mailbox, you're getting a CD from AOL that you stick in your computer. And then it's like, you know, like, <laughs> get online and start talking to random people. You know, and it was just so much safer for me to do that. Totally. And so when I started to look at um, kind of all my past relationships, I realized like the type of unavailable boy or man that I had been chasing changed and kind of morphed over the years. Um, but that it had always been that way for me, that it was always, there was always something supremely safe about dating someone who was unavailable. Um, but it inevitably resulted in my heart being broken and me being kind of like emotionally crushed. What was the, as you've done all the work, like what was the core thing that you've come to about why you were seeking unavailable men? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, it really came down to settling that there were a number of, that there were men that I dated that were unavailable. The men that I did date that were available, I wasn't attracted to. And it really became like, I just, I think the core thing was around settling and self-worth and not, and not trusting. You know, I, I talk a little bit in the book. I talk about my marriage to a near stranger. I married an Irish guy that I had dated long distance for six months, eight months. Um, we got married in secret. We moved to Ireland. It was, it's a crazy story, but 
And at the time, my life was like a total rolling dumpster fire. I mean, it, it, you have to know the backstory to understand why it looked like he was like a life preserver amongst all this chaos. Um, but, you know, he and I, we didn't work. At, there were red flags from the beginning. I was notorious for ignoring red flags. I'm, I'm, I used to be your girl. You want to explain away a red flag? I will help you. We'll turn it green. No problem. Um, but, um, but what happened, you know, in that relationship was that I really never trusted that my partner would be able to accept me for who I was, you know, and there's this, there was a deep, um, part of me that didn't like who I was. Like, I'm trying to, I, even just saying this, I'm like, God, you know, I never did anything bad. I'm not a bad person, but there's just this part of me that thinks I'm unlovable. That was a big, you know, that was really at the core of it, that there was part of me that felt like I was unlovable. And so I would never be able to really express myself to my partner because I could never really trust that that person would be able to hear what I was saying and love me anyway. So, so many of my relationships ended up with me just kind of like manipulating um, my truth in order to walk on eggshells around my partner so that like they would respond to me the way that I wanted them to. So that we never had to talk about anything serious. I was really never willing to test the resilience of my relationships because I was never really willing to be that honest about what was going on. You know, mm -hmm. I love talking about the funny stuff, the, you know, the silly, the, like, I love telling you, I love you. I have a much harder time telling you, like, I'm mad that the dishwasher is loaded incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, and because of that, like, was it hard? Were you ever able to, in those past relationships or with your ex husband who was Irish, mm -hmm. um, were you ever able to show up as you actually were? Were you always no. like you were? Oh my God, no, a thousand percent. I was never able to fully be myself. And, you know, I cheated him and myself out of five years of our time because I was not able to be me in that relationship. But an even better example of that is, I think, during my university years. So when I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and, you know, I was a thousand miles away from home. I didn't know anyone. It was the first time in my life, actually. I mean, I remember being very excited to go there because I was like, awesome. I'm going to go somewhere where I don't know anyone. I can start all over basically kind of going like, look, I made a mess of this middle school, high school thing. And I'm just going to start over at college. And, um, and I did that and I met a bunch of women. I joined a sorority. I, that was a great experience for me, honestly. And I ended up living with a bunch of my sorority sisters off campus. So we had this house. It was like a three bedroom house and we probably lived like 13 people. I remember, <laughs> do you know, you know, Carrie Northington? Yeah. Okay, so she she and I know each other from that period of time. Oh. And she lived, we lived together and she lived in a closet. She had shipped- You lived a, in that house? Yes, she lived <laughs> in this house with me. And she lived in a closet. So she had a full-size bed and the closet must've been, it was not a walk-in closet, but it just fit this full-size bed. So she crammed this full-size bed in this closet and was like, I live here now. Well, we had asked her to live with us, but she had claimed that room because it had a door, which was nice. <laughs> and the rest of us, like, you know, we had like loft beds. There were so many people in this house. So anyway, it was, there were parts of that were super fun, but I found myself living. I found myself, I'd always struggled with my self-esteem. I'd always struggled with my value. I'd always struggled with accepting me, myself at the size that I was. I was, found myself being like a regular, a pretty regular looking person, probably wearing a size 14, 16. You know, I was pretty heavy at that time, but I was living with all these women who were like, size double extra small, double zeros, these tiny little gals that were just running around. And, you know, the thing about that is that all of, there are kind of two threads to this story. One of them is I had to have the journey that I had to have to come to self-acceptance and self-love anyway. I would have had to have it whether I lived with those 11 women or a different 11 women. So I'm lucky that those ladies I lived with, they're still all in my corner. We're still all friends, all that stuff. 
Um, also, I don't know what kind of stuff was going on for them because I was so obsessed with myself and what, how I was feeling that I wasn't a great friend, right? Plus, I was like 19 and 20, right? So, um, but these gals all had, you know, these hot boyfriends, bartenders, athletes, whatever, you know, all that stuff. And I can just remember that I already felt like I'm not like these other girls. And um, even if, you know, even if they're willing to be friends with me, like I still like don't quite deserve it. So I would just kind of be like, I would just get in where I could fit in. And so that's for me started to be like, well, I'm just going to be the girl that's ready on time. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just going to, I'm just going to hang out with their boyfriends while they get ready, you know? And that really required me to become kind of like a guy's girl. And mm -hmm. at first that was awesome. Right. Because I loved being kind of like the sidekick. Like I got a lot of attention from the boyfriends without like being threatening to anyone or, you know, threatening anyone's relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, but in order to be so low maintenance, in order for my feathers never to be ruffled, in order to be one of the guys, I had to give away pieces, piece after piece after piece of myself. Mm -hmm. Because the minute, the problem with being a guy's girl is that the minute that you are actually authentic and something pisses you off or something, for me, something pissed me off or something didn't land right, like it was shut down. We don't do feelings here. We're, you know, like that's not mm -hmm. a thing that happens, right? So it cost me a lot to kind of like be a guy's girl all with kind of this other underlying motive of like, I'm really hoping, you know, that someday one of these guys is going to turn to me and be like, you're the low maintenance girl of my dreams. Right. Which is like mm -hmm. shitty to admit. Right. You know, I'm glad I don't operate that way anymore. Yeah. Um, but it's like, you've, I lost so much of myself and it was kind of like a death by a thousand paper cuts of like, I didn't really realize how much of myself I was giving away mm -hmm. in order to fit in and be this like low maintenance, cool chick who could like, you know, beer bong a zillion beers and then do shots afterwards or whatever. Yeah. Um, until I was like completely running on empty and I was like, God, who even am I, you know? And so, mm -hmm. so much of, you know, my relationship patterns were around like not being willing to step into full self, not being willing to honor my authenticity or my truth. Well, the interesting thing too, that I'm thinking about is like being the cool girl, like mm -hmm. at different times in my life when I've dated, I've been like, I'm, I'm the cool girl. Like yeah. I go with the flow. I don't make, I don't talk about things that are uncomfortable. Like I just want to be the cool girl until I lock the guy in. Yes. And once we get into the relationship, <laughs> then I can show him all the crazy, but until we're locked in, I got to be the cool bitch that just like rolls with the punches. Like I'm not a cool girl. I don't roll with things. I'm <laughs> It's painful, you know? <laughs> I love it. I just feel like that should be, I want that to be my new model. Like, I'm not the cool girl. I have opinions. I, <laughs> I am not your laid back chick. So it's fine. I have, you know, and I, I, I think that some of that comes with maturity. And for me, you know, I just never kind of grew out of the phase of um, not being able to like want to people please in that way, you know, of just like, I don't want to ruffle your feathers. I don't want to make you mad, blah, blah, whatever. So I had to like, I found myself getting older and other people around me, other women around me were like learning how to actually navigate relationships. And I really wasn't partly because of my drinking, but also partly because I had these patterns that I don't really know why, but that I had them and I couldn't behave in any other way until like, I like did behave another way and then it explode my relationship. How did you learn what were the skills that you learned to go from being the mm. cool girl who fucking just flows with it to mm. being a communicative woman who can speak well with a partner about her inner world without being a fucking psycho? Because there's a, like, I've had to learn that balance myself. How can I be, not be the fucking psycho that lives inside of me 
cool girl? Like, how do I just show up as a communicative woman? Yes, in the middle. Okay, so, I mean, a lot of this is related to the work that I did. And like I said, so I had that experience with that guy. The bottom fell out for me. I had a girlfriend that had done this work around men and relationships. I called her in tears, like, okay, you know what? I think I'm ready. She was like, okay, well, here's what the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to do 30, you know, she's like, actually, so the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to set some boundaries with all the men in your life because you are addicted to the attention you're getting from men. So no more DMs, no more text messages, no more one-on-one coffee time, like none of that. And I was like, I mean, I totally bought because I'm like, fuck that. I don't, I don't want to do that, you know, but I was like, well, I'm in a lot of pain and she's giving me a solution. So I'm like, I'm kind of figuring that I'm going to end up doing like a 14 day, like dick detox. Right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that for 14 days. I can do that for two weeks. No problem. Well, fast forward, it took me 11 months to do the work that she had asked me to do. And she required that I have these boundaries the whole time. And if I would have known it was going to take that long, I never would have agreed to do it. Right. So it's kind of a case of like the universe did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And so the first thing I had to do was like get a boundary between me and this male attention that I was getting. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing I had to do was I had to do some writing about how it actually served, how I thought that it served me to get that attention versus what it actually looked like. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I'm getting all this attention, because I'm joking, because I'm willing to be the butt of jokes because I'm willing to make fun of other people because I'm flirting because I'm whatever like that all feeds my self-esteem and gives me this like external validation but it never actually amounted to anything like when I looked back on my relationships I'm like where did all of this actually ever get me nowhere right. single alone miserable right so I had to kind of really acknowledge that the pattern of behavior I was engaging in was not actually providing me anything substantive or loving or kind you know um and then Further on into the work, I realized like I did not have a lot of like really close knit girlfriends in my life because I would like I would bail on hanging out with a girlfriend in a heartbeat to go like hit up a new guy. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not proud of it, but it's the way that I operated for a long time. So this this woman that helped me with this stuff, she's like, look, you need to have a girl gang in your life. And so she put together this exercise for me and I, I put it in the book where it's like you outline a a list of things that you desire confidence in. And then you go, okay, anytime I see a woman that has these things, I'm going to ask her to coffee. Or like, if you drink, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask her to have drinks because I, it's like, so like if I'm aspiring to be an entrepreneur, you know, I better have some entrepreneurial women in my circle who know what they're doing. And the best way to get those people in my circle is like, go hang out with them, get to know them, invite them, you know, to be on your podcast, start to chat with them about what they're doing. So I really had to build this girl gang. And, and I was only able to do that because I was not giving any time of day to any men. Mm -hmm. The reason, I mean, there are so many reasons that a girl gang is valuable, but one of the things that it has allowed me to do is to practice what you're talking about. Having a girl gang was a safe place for me to fully be myself, for me to learn how to get in an argument with someone, for me to learn how to apologize, for me to test the resilience of these friendships, of these relationships. And I had to have some practice doing that so that when I was doing it with a partner, a romantic partner, when the stakes felt higher, it wasn't like my first rodeo. Right. You know, because like I came from a family where we only talked uh, news, weather, and sports, right? Both, both of my parents are alcoholics. My dad killed himself with his drinking. My mom's sober 22 years. We never talked about any, you, in my family, if you got mad about something, you like had a temper tantrum at the kitchen table and then ran upstairs to your room and then we never discussed it again. Mm. you know so like I do not come from a family that fights I don't understand how to fight fair like I had to have some practice learning how to learning how to like trust that I could say I'm pissed off about this and people would go 
it's fine. We're fine. We're okay. We're good. You know, I can change that. Right. So I started to do that with women in my life. And, um, and those are the women that I've started that with. They're like, you know, they're my ride or dies. We've been friends for 10, you know, some of them 10 or 12 years now. Um, and then the other thing that I had to do once I found a romantic relationship that started working for me, which would be with my husband, Jeff, you know, I started to have, I started to kind of really rely on these two R's. I call them, I call them the two R's. So one is resilient is the resilience of our relationship. I had to trust that like, I'm allowed to surface with him and say like, Hey, I'm upset about this and that he's not going to go anywhere or, you know, like he's going to be able to hear that. He's going to be able to hold space for that. And then the other is reciprocity that I have to be able to do that for him. Yeah. So, so much of that is a practice, I think. And there's so, for me, there was a lot of fear about even being willing to like show up to that practice because like I came from this place of like, we don't talk about any feelings. <laughs> totally. The two, two of the things I really love about what you just said, the first thing is how much time and effort went into changing mm-hmm. that habit of behavior. Mm-hmm. Like I think so many women, when they're starting to change their habits and behaviors around dating, they're like, I'm just going to do these couple things and it's going to change my life. But whenever Totally. Or like, I'm going to do it for 12 days and then like, I'll have a totally different life. <laughs> it's like, well, totally. And honestly, like, I think the program and the 12 steps like really probably taught you about Mm -hmm. the time, the effort and the energy that goes into working through and changing habits and patterns of behavior. Totally. And one of the things that's so interesting is that, you know, they talk about in recovery circles, 12 step talks a lot about like one day at a time. And, you know, when I first got sober, I would show up in AA meetings and 12 step meetings and people would be like, celebrating 30 years of sobriety and they'd be like I don't know it's just like one day all of a sudden I woke up and I had 30 years and I'd be like bullshit right because mm-hmm. at, at 30 days sober it was so fucking hard to get another day together you know I'd already I'd be like I'd have a strategy I would go to a meeting you know I would like do work I'd go to a meeting I'd come home I would like grab a, a thing of oh my god I got sober in the fall and so I and I ate a ton of sugar alcohol is all sugar anyway so yeah. I and, um, I, so I would get a bag of those candy pumpkins, which everyone is so good. I love those things. Though. So, I would, <laughs> so I would go to a meeting and then I would usually go to the gym and run like four or five miles. And then I would come home and just eat candy pumpkins and watch gossip girl. Cause they were like, I love it. And, <laughs> I loved gossip girls. Cause they were like endless episodes or like hours long at a time. Right. And I would just stay sober. So it was like so hard for me to imagine a world in which like somebody's like, Oh, I just woke up one day and all of a sudden I had 30 days sober. All of a sudden my patterns had changed, you know? Um, but that is true for me. You know, like I, uh, I've been sober almost nine years. I'll be sober nine years in September. And today it does kind of feel like, wow, I just like just kept doing it one day at a time. And suddenly, like, before you know it, everything's different. And that lived experience of having everything kind of be different in sobriety gave me some fuel and some uh, ability to trust that if I just did this work around men and relationships, everything would be different. Totally. I also love that you talked about the fact that you kind of practiced with your friends mm-hmm. first and like learned that habit with women and then you applied it to men. Yeah, totally. And I feel like I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want anyone to construe that as in like the only value of girlfriends is as practice, <laughs> but, <No. laughs> but no. it, really, it really was important to me because I just, I had no practice talking about how I felt and like 
other than being in therapy, whereas pain, you know, which I am a huge fan of therapy. I feel like everyone, I mean, everyone should just go to therapy. Just agreed. Um, so I'm a huge fan of therapy and I had experience doing, having that kind of space to show up, um, where I was confident that it was a safe space, but starting to show up with my girlfriends that way, that was a big shift for me because I was always one of those people. I love taking care of people. I love being able to show up for people. Um, I, I have a hard time letting people show up for me. So it was a really big deal for me in that period of my life to start to let the women who I knew show up for me. Um, and so maybe it wasn't even as much about learning how to fight with them as it was about coming to them and saying, man, I'm really sad today. Can you please help, you know, can we talk or whatever? Because like, I just, I was so used to being self-sufficient when it came to my emotions that I was not, I needed to practice letting other people show up for me and love me and support me. Totally. And I mean, that makes so much sense, especially being a child of addiction, Mm -hmm. probably working through so many issues with codependence, Mm. like learning how to let others hold space for you. Oh my God. It's that actually, I think might be one of the most important lessons. Like I don't talk about that much in the book because I didn't have as much clarity around it as I do today, but it's like so many of us, um, have that codependence of like caretaking for others. And it is really powerful when we can go, I need someone to hold this space for me. And I I need to learn how to let my friends support me and love me because I really had to, I really had to think about it. Right. Because I had this um, perspective, like, Oh, I don't want to be a burden on my friends. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a burden on them. And then some one day it shifted for me where I was like, Oh my God, the point of friendship, when I think about my friends, all I want to do is know them better. Yeah. Right. I want to cheerlead them on. I want to know them better. I want to help them feel better. So it's actually a gift for me when my friends come to me and I can support them. So what if I thought, started to think about it in in those terms, like that it's a gift for my friends when I can come to them with a problem and I can let them know me better, show up for me better, support me better. Yeah. When you were dating um, and before you started to do this work, did you show up in dating as a codependent, as someone who wanted to fix and help? Yeah. Um, so I was a sucker for a guy who was an alcoholic. That would be one of my favorite non-available types to go for. Um, I was definitely into saving people, helping people, fixing people. I talk about it a little bit in the book because, you know, there are some of us that struggle with this like charming character trait of being a fixer. And the reality is that although somebody may enjoy being fixed for a month or two, eventually like, you know, the kind of like suffocating nature of fixing someone is going to piss someone off. And like, you know, it, it, it's unsustainable, right? Because the power dynamic is so bizarre. And when you're like fixing someone, there's so much ego involved with it. It's like not a sustainable thing. Um, but one of the things that was awesome is that, you know, I got to look at my patterns around fixing and I got to go, look, I'm not in charge of fixing anyone. This is so a lot of my own work too, has been around like boundary setting codependence and just being like, look, I'm not in charge. I'm really only in charge of me. And I'm just going to show up and do the best I can. And I'm going to trust that you're going to show up and do the best you can. I'm going to support you, but I'm not going to fix you. Um, But one of the things that was interesting is, you know, so I spent 11 months doing all the work around men and relationships. And then I went back to dating. And almost immediately, I went out on a date with a guy who was unavailable. He's coming off a really bad breakup, living with his parents, got blackout drunk on our first date, um, even though I don't drink. So I was like drinking soda waters. I had no idea how drunk he was. And um, in the past, prior to the work, that's the kind of guy I would have chased him for six to nine months. Oh my God. He had all of the broken baby bird. <laughs> I'm like, I will fit out. I'll make you a little nest right up in my house. But what happened was we had this horrific date. And then, um, he called me the next day. I, I called a girlfriend of mine and I was like, I can't believe I just did all this work. How could I, how could I go out with this guy that's unavailable? I just spent 11 months like 
trying not to do this, you know? And she was like, well, the good news is like, you can set them aside. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you could just like not go out with them again. And I'm like, yeah. what? you know, like, I, what do you mean? No, now here's the part where, and she's like, no, that would be a new behavior if you just kind of like set them aside. So yeah. he called, he had called me the next day actually to say like, sorry that the date was so bad. And also, by the way, here's what's going on for me. I'm not really, I'm not really going to be a good person to date right now. And I heard him say that and like deleted his number and was on to the next. So it was like, yeah. it wasn't like, of course, when I finished doing all this work, I'm like, okay, I'm going to open the door and like step out like Maria Von Trapp in the sound of music and be like, the hills are like, <laughs> my husband's going to drop down from the right. sky. I felt like super entitled to that. Uh, and I had to date for like nine more months until I found my, my perfect person. But in those intervening nine months, I learned to like fail faster. Yeah. Which well, was like a huge benefit. Sorry. Well, you recognize the patterns of behavior. Like, so I like you, so I'm from a family of addicts too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never an addict. I was always, mm-hmm. my addiction was codependence and fixing, right? Yeah. And being approved, like I was stressed out per human being. Um, but what I realized too in the dating of people was that like I would notice the red flag sooner mm-hmm. and I'd be like, okay, I'm out of here. Because yes. before that, I realized, I was like, why is, why does every guy I go on dates with, like, why were they drug dealers? Yes. Why are they functional, they're like functional <laughs> drug addicts because uh, I used to always say drug addicts are fun. Yeah. They're fun until they're Scots not. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Same with alcoholics. And it's like that, that moment of like, we think everything, we do the work and we're like, it's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be perfect. Well, the perfection is, oh my God, I went on a date with a guy and he's an addict and he's unavailable. Oh my God, I'm snapping because we just learned to fail faster. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just, I I got better at ruling guys out quicker. Then the next date I went on, I went on a date with this guy that like I had set up some boundaries. I had during my days of just kind of running wild, I, I was notorious for like going on a date with a guy, sleeping with him. And then like, he'd be my boyfriend, right? Like there was no actual dating. We never like really got to know each other. So then like six months in, I discovered that I fucking hate his guts, but I've already been, you know, I practically moved into his house at that stage. So things are really gnarly. So one of my new behaviors in dating in the aftermath of this was like, just trying to set some physical boundaries. So I decided like, look, I'm going to try to go on a date with a guy four times before I even kiss him just to see what that's like. It's not like a, it's not religiously inspired. It's not, it's just like, I'm just going to try something different. I have this old pattern of hopping right into bed. So the new pattern is going to be something kind of opposite of that. So I went out on a date with this guy and I told him like, you know, he ended up, we started at a park or something and we ended up back at his house and we got to his house and he was like really putting on the pressure to like hop in bed with him. And I told him like, look, I'm just not interested right now. I'm like, I'm trying to do something different. And he was like, oh, what's the worst that could happen? Come on, what's the worst that can happen? I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? Like, you can kill me and chop me up in a million pieces. Start in oil drop. Like, you can get me pregnant. Like, there's a lot of bad things, you know. But I found myself like shouting that stuff at him as I picked up my shit and walked out the door. Yeah. Which, in a prior life, I would have been like, hey, you're right. What's the worst that can happen? You know, like, right. So I started to have this like kind of new reaction to my dating life. And I found myself like just saying, no, you're not for me faster. Mm-hmm. And that was truly empowering. And my girlfriend, Sandy, I love this. She has this she talks about it like shoes, right? Like she's like, look, when you go to Nordstrom, you don't fuck with shoes you don't like, Mm-mm. right? You're not going to waste your time trying on a pair of Birkenstocks when you're a woman who only wears high heels. Exactly. Right. So it's like, why in the world do we do that with dating where we're like on Tinder and we're like, oh my God, but if you look at the fifth picture, he's like got this plaid shirt on and he has two dogs. And like, <laughs> I mean, if you hold it like this way and you kind of split like, no, we no. don't fuck with shoes. We don't like it's so true something that I've been something I've been playing with lately which is what you just said is like 
like the power of saying no, like and trusting my intuition. So I've been doing a lot of making out lately, Mm, like a year old, like having these hot and heavy makeouts and being like, just, you know, we're not going to have sex tonight, you know, and just trusting my intuitive gut. That's like, for some reason is like, nah, you need more information before you have sex with this person. Yes. And I love that. And I talk a little bit about it where it's like, look, when I started to think of dating as information gathering, the whole thing like changed for me. And I'm like, look, my job is not to like, my job, well, I guess it's better. It's easier to say this way. My job is just like, get more information, Mm -hmm. assess how well we're compatible. And then like, get more information again. And the beautiful sure. thing is I always get to change my mind, which I had come from this place of like, uh, uh, I had come from like a very rigid place in my life where I used to be like, my name is Heidi. I do this. I do this. You know, like I had a plan. I always was like a success driven. Like, so it was hard for me to be willing to change my mind when I had a plan, mm-hmm. but now it's like, I'm going to set my plan aside and I'm just going to remember I am allowed to change my mind. So I can go on dates with this guy for three months if I want and then go, you're not right for me. It's okay. But like I had to, I didn't know how to do that. I had to start practicing that. I love that you're doing that. Yeah. I even had like, I love it. I've been thinking about dating as information gathering and each step of the way is information gathering and I can change my mind. I met this guy pretty recently Mm -hmm. and met him thought he was really cute and it has been like a slow progress he was like Mm -hmm. we should get drinks and then he didn't ask me for drinks right right away and I was like fuck this guy he asked me (laughs) for drinks right away and then he like we end up hanging out one night with a group like with a group Mm -hmm. of friends and I'm like okay I'm intrigued by him he's Mm -hmm. cute I don't know and then when he left my house that night he gave me just like a little kiss which I'm like Uh why are you just giving me a little kiss okay (laughs) And he was like, you should let me make you dinner sometime. So he leaves and Judge Judy is like, well, he didn't schedule the date. He didn't schedule a time to make me dinner. <laughs> and so it's been this like slow progression with this guy. And he's just, he's a really interesting character. But anyway, I had kind of in my brain been like, nah, nothing's going to happen with this guy. Mm-hmm. And then I let him make me dinner recently. Well, before yeah. I let him make, make me dinner, I let him take me out on a date. Yeah. And I was like, that. okay. And so part of the fact finding is like, I need to make out with him. Yeah. I need to see if the sexual you do there. A thousand percent. So we just had like a hot and heavy makeout one night. And my, all of a sudden I was like, oh, 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 I'm feeling some kind of way about this guy. Yes. And then he was like, let me make you dinner. So then he this had me over. He made me this three course meal. And we mm. talked the whole time he cooked. He, like, I walk in his apartment, everything's set up on the counter. And it was so sweet. Yeah. And then he made me this amazing meal. Mm. And after he made me dinner, he said, thank you so much for letting me cook for you. And <laughs> I need to cook for you again. It'll be better next time. I was like, <laughs> my whole perception, I had, in my fact finding, I was like, I kind of was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we're going to have chemistry. And then I was like, we have chemistry. And then he did all the things. And I was like, ooh, all right. I all love right. that. I love back that so much. Back on. <laughs> <laughs> It like gave me goosebumps listening to that because one of the things I think is interesting is like, I, I also, like I said, I, I do think of it as information about it. I'm like thinking of you, like get your magnifying glass out, put your detective Holmes, Sherlock Holmes hat on and like just start finding information. And so often we do it backwards and our mm-hmm. like hookup culture has us do it backwards where we like test the chemistry first, which means we usually end up with bed with, in bed with someone before we like know anything about them. Yeah. And I have to caveat and say like, look, I am definitely not here to be the arbiter of anyone's sexual conduct. Like in the book, my, one of the first things I say is like, look, if you're fucking randos and it's working for you and you're having fun, keep doing it. Right. Like right. I 
have fun doing whatever serves you. But for me, like that stopped serving me and I didn't have anything to replace it with. And like the same thing with this chemistry thing, like it didn't serve me anymore to like know that I had physical chemistry with someone and then find myself like really connected with them on that level, but discover that like, it was scary when they got angry or discover that like they didn't know how to communicate about their feelings or like all of these other things that like I had it backwards, you know? Yeah. There's something interesting, which I know because you're sober, you'll relate to this. I am not sober, but I'm very conscious of how drinking affects my view of men and dating. Mm. It also affects my view of sexual chemistry. Mm-hmm. So oh, I have, I've started to engage in a lot of sober sex where- yeah. I will only have sex with a guy for the first time sober. Oh my God. And are there men that are terrified of that? Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> and are you terrified? Were you terrified of that a little bit? You know, it's funny. The first, when I started doing it, I didn't even realize I was sober because I was having yeah. so much fun with someone oh, that's amazing. and we just had chemistry and we had a great sexual experience. But uh-huh. like for you, especially in reading through your book and all the different adventures you had, what was it like getting sober and dating and having sex? Yeah, it was terrifying, right? I had spent a lot of, I was a pretty late bloomer, first of all. So like, I didn't even really, my I didn't lose my virginity until I was 22. And even at that stage, it was because I was out with a friend, we'd been drinking and I was like, look, I'm ready to be done with this. Like, let's just go ahead and do this, right? And I actually, my first experience was in a brownout. I don't remember my, many of the details. I never really thought about like how I missed a learning opportunity around sex by being browned out, blacked out. Um, during that, during that experience until recently, I was on a podcast called the art of losing it, where this woman interviews people about their first times. And she and I really, it's actually, it's really cool. And she and I were talking and I'm like, she's like, wow, so you really missed a good learning opportunity. I'm like, damn, I did. But anyway, the point being that a lot of my, like, kind of, you know, a lot of my sexual experiences other than like, you know, like light, lighter stuff or whatever happened while I was drunk. So, you know, I started drinking when I was 16 15 and I got sober at 31. So all of a sudden at 31, I found myself like, wow, I'm sober. And I'm not really sure like how I'm going to feel about any of this. Like I've never even been on a date sober, you know, I've never, cause like mm-hmm. always we like have a drink before, have a drink on, you know, on the date, whatever. So, uh, it was scary to start to navigate that stuff. I did date someone early on in recovery and, um, and it went really sideways. <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> It was really bad. Uh, we got together. I, I was only six months sober. People suggest like, you know, wait a year. I didn't really want to wait a year. I, I dated this guy when I was about six months sober and we had a, a good kind of personal connection, but we had really very bad sexual chemistry. And so then it was like, oh my God, not only do I have, am I having sex with this guy? It's bad sex. And now how am I going to tell him? I'm not going to tell him. We're just going to break up. You know, like yeah, <laughs> it totally. it wasn't awesome. Right. So there was a lot of trial and error of like learning how to get comfortable with the idea of like, getting, being really comfortable with my body. How do I really feel about being in my body right now? How does it really feel to be being with somebody else with my body? You know? So, um, a lot of trial and error went into it and just a lot of going like, okay, you know, checking in with myself, like, how does this really feel? And, you know, I I think that was something that I never had done before, um, before being sober and having sober sex. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. And I've started to ask women that question, like, when was the last time you had sex for the first time with a new person sober? Yeah. And so many people are like, oh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a game changer. And I mean, I certainly learned. Oh, got it. What, what did you start to learn? 
Yeah. So I started to learn um, some of it was about maturity, but some of it was about like being present when I was having sex with people. So I started to learn like, what do I like? How does this feel? You know, I mean, and that was just like a whole new experience for me because so much of my sexuality and my sexual experiences were related, were like during a period of time where I couldn't remember anything about them, whether I liked Mm -hmm. what I liked and what I didn't like, you know? So in some ways it was kind of fun to have like a whole new sexual awakening at 31. In some ways it was terrifying, but I, I am an advocate for sober sex. I think like that, as far as information gathering is concerned, it's an important piece of the puzzle. And I also think like, it's just important to know like what your authentic connection is like without having, um, you know, having to kind of juice the wheels or what, what am I trying to say? I'm kind of combining metaphors, but I'm thinking like squeaky wheel and social lubricant, right? Yeah, totally. You know, it's like, how do I, how do we really connect when there's no alcohol involved? Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, Something I was thinking a lot about as I was reading through your book was, especially like having such a connection to addiction Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about like the transformation that you went through. What do you think the connection, when you think back to being an addict and the choices that you were making with men, like what's the connection there for you? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that all of my choices, you know, in recovery, 12-step recovery talks a lot about being powerless over alcohol, that like we just can't stop picking up. And that's true for me. That's part of how I knew as alcoholic, I could stay stopped for like two or three days, but any excuse, and I would always pick back up. Like that, there was really no reason, you know, I, there was really no willingness for me to stay stopped for a long period of time, um, no matter what the consequence. So I always found a way to pick back up. Um, and But I actually also find this powerlessness extends to my behavior. So I was also really compelled to do stuff that like, I didn't really necessarily want to do. Um, but like my brain would say, do this. And I literally had no there was no space between a thought and the action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my brain would say like, we're lonely, go find someone We're you know, whatever you'll feel better if you have some, you know, you need like, my brain was always telling me I wasn't enough and that I needed this validation from men. And so it was like, I was compelled to just like go out and find guys, whether they were good partners or not, it actually didn't matter because they just needed that kind of like immediate hit of like the flirtatious texting or like the sending of the pictures or whatever. Right. So, um, so I think there was something to the external validation. There's a part of, now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm really, the thoughts really coming together for me, which is that there's a part of alcoholism for me where it feels like there's this giant hole and like nothing is ever enough to fill it. And honestly in sobriety, you can fill it with all kinds. Like, so you can, so it's like, not enough alcohol in the world, not enough food in the world, not enough sex in the world, not enough shopping in the world, not enough, like I can fill anything with this. I can try to fill this hole with anything. Um, and I think the first two things that are easiest for me to try to fill it with were alcohol, drugs, and men. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality was like, I had some healing to do. And for me, I had to develop a relationship with a power greater than myself with a higher power to like learn that like, mm-hmm. I am okay that I do not require external validation, that I do not have to seek outside myself, whether that seeking is in a bottle, whether that seeking is in the bottom of a pill bottle, whether that seeking is in men. Like, I don't need any of those things to be okay. I actually have what I need to be okay. It's all inside of me. It requires like meditation, getting grounded. Mm -hmm. It requires a little bit of work to like get reconnected to that stuff. But like my whole life before that had been driven by this idea of something outside filling the needs that I had inside. And so when alcohol and drugs were taken away or I decided I was no longer going to use those, then it came very easy to use men. But I think that all of my patterns around my choices around men were kind of driven by that compulsion to feel like I, to feel whole via some kind of external piece. 
filling that black hole. It's interesting. Yes. So this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about as I think about addiction mm-hmm. is like, I think that almost all of us have that black hole in us mm-hmm. I do that too. we're, that we're trying to fill. And even though some people are dependent upon substances, we're all chemically dependent upon a set of feelings that serve mm-hmm. us in some way. Yes. So like when I work with high power women who are attorneys or doctors or whatever, a lot of times they're chemically dependent upon the high that they get from stress and anxiety. The rush from, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that's partly why I was like, this book is necessary because there are women who need these tools, who need to understand, who would benefit from learning that like they don't have to have this external validation from men to be mm-hmm. okay, right? Because even if they're not alcoholic or they're not addict, there are, there, we, we all kind of search that high, whether it's through you know, filling the hole of stress and anxiety, feeling needed, men, shopping. Mm. I mean, there's just all these different ways that we do yeah. it. And so I was like, I really think this would be valuable to women outside of outside of the recovery community yeah. because, um, because we're all kind of struggling with that. Yeah. One of the biggest like breakthroughs for me was when I had this moment where I realized like all the love that I need in the world is only going to come to me and like is, is only inside of me. Sorry, my headphones died, but now I can hear you. Okay, I can hear you. <laughs> You're good. Um, I realized that like all the all the things I needed in the world that I was seeking from outside of me is all inside of me. All the love I need in the world, everything like that is going to fulfill me. I actually have it inside of me. It's just acknowledging it, recognizing it, and tapping into it. Oh, a thousand percent. And that reminds me of. Um, Don Miguel Ruiz's Mastery of Love, which I feel like, have you read that? I haven't, no. Okay, so he talks about, like, he he gives it a metaphor. He calls it the magical kitchen. And he's like, you have this magical kitchen inside of you that will serve you up anything you could possibly desire. And then one day somebody comes to the door with a pizza and is like, I'll give you this pizza if you let me control your life. And you you decide to take it when you already could have made the pizza and something even better in your own magical kitchen. Anyway, he talks about, he creates the metaphor of a kitchen and a pizza and controlling this. And it's a very yeah. relatable. <laughs> no, no, totally. I like the biggest thing for me was when I started studying a course on miracles and Gabby mm-hmm. Bernstein and like in her book, spirit junkie, she talks about it. I remember when I read that book, I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I get oh, it. Yeah. Yes. So good. I have tried a course in miracles so many times. It is so, I do not have the discipline. I'm like, I I prefer to read like the students of it. I prefer Marianne Williamson and I prefer, I ultimately prefer Gabby Bernstein. She's my Mm -hmm. favorite student of the course. Oh, that's amazing. Because I feel the same way. Every time I get into a course on miracles, I'm like, okay, but not, not today. The first five pages are pretty good. I've read the first five pages like 15 times, but. (laughs) Yeah, I've gone through quite a bit of it and I still would rather read, you know, the student of the student. (laughs) I love that. So tell me how people can, I know, I know obviously people can read your book, but how can people work with you and connect with you more? Yeah, totally. I was just thinking about this before we hopped on. I wanted to make sure that I offered your listeners something. So I do have the relationship ready workshop is an online course. um, And I would love to give your listeners 25% off the course. If they use the code girl gang, Beautiful. Um, you. you can get to the course through my Instagram, which is honeyb 52 just H-O-N-E-Y-B-52. Awesome. Um, they can find me on my website, which is HeidiBCoaching.com. I have a podcast of my own, the Relationship Ready Podcast with Heidi B. 
I think that's all the ways. I love that. Something that I've been asking everybody um, that I have on as a guest is obviously the podcast is called All the Things. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to know as a woman, what does being all the things mean and look like for you? Oh my gosh, this is, that's an awesome question, especially being in the entrepreneurial space where it's like all these different types of ways to connect with people. I think for me, in order to stay sane while trying to provide all the things, um, I'm really rooted in a meditation, daily meditation practice. Um, it is not perfect by any means, but I, you know, I set a timer on my phone for like five minutes so that I, cause like, if I don't set a timer, I'll be like, I've been sitting down for 15 seconds. I'll be like, it's, it's been 10 minutes now. So, you know, I really think that for me, in order to be all the things um, that I get to be in my life, um, part of that, it really starts for getting grounded in a daily meditation practice. Um, that has actually gotten better over this kind of um, period. The COVID-19 crisis has really yeah. um, reaffirmed that practice for me and allowed me to expand it. But I mean, that's, that's the other thing is that I really try to approach my life in a way that's so open-minded about what will come next, because I feel truly blessed to have had the opportunity to go like, I want to follow my heart's passion and here's, here we go. We're just going to do this. You know, it's been scary at times, but I feel really lucky to just like have moved through fear fearfully. Yeah. I love that so much. I feel the same way. And I also have to set a timer for meditation or I'll be like, I've been here for like 20 minutes and it hasn't even been one song. I know, I know. I just, I'm so grateful to be um, chatting with you today. Thanks for sharing your platform with me. I love talking to you. This is awesome. I love talking to you too. I literally could sit here and talk to you about dating and sex and relationships for hours. So I'm going to have to have you come back and we'll talk more. Oh, that'd be fun. Yay. Okay. Thank you so much, Heidi. You got it. Thanks, Regina.